This podcast is made possible by your support and your donations. Thank you. And by the purchase of my book called Everyday Buddhism, Real Life Buddhist Teachings and Practices for Real Change. I will post an affiliate link to the book on Amazon in the show notes. And if you've already read it, please take a minute to rate and review and also consider purchasing it again for a friend or family member as a gift. Welcome to Everyday Buddhism, making every day better by applying the proven tools found in Buddhist concepts. Welcome to episode 93 of Everyday Buddhism, Making Everyday Better. Well, I think you're in for a treat in this episode. At least, it was a treat for me to have a conversation with Clark Strand. Clark is a former Zen monk, author, haiku master, teacher, and communicator of all things spiritual and religious. He has studied and actually practiced within many, many spiritual and religious traditions, so he speaks from actual experience. Now, I invited him on this podcast for this episode to talk about Nishiren Buddhism and the Soka Gakkai and chanting in general. It's a subject I haven't covered on this podcast, and the Timing was sparked by the recent passing of Tina Turner, who was a very public Soka Gakkai practitioner. Although the focus of the conversation began with the Soka Gakkai, it became a fascinating journey to many other areas due to Clark's wide reach and spiritual depth. Among many other things, we talked about the folk traditions within all religions, or as Clark said, quote, there is always a religion within a religion, unquote, about how the Soka Gakkai became virtually the only ethnically and racially diverse Buddhist organization in the world, and about why Clark states that spirituality needs to be about ecology, not theology and that the reason the thread that runs through his spiritual experience is ecology and the folk traditions. And for fellow Pure Land and Shin practitioners, about how the Pure Land tradition is the only tradition deeply grounded in ecology. We also talked about haiku and about the divine feminine, the divine mother, and the rosary as a spiritual and not a religious practice, and is essentially a tantric mantra practice. We talked about the 12 Steps program and about chanting and how it gives voice to one's intentions, dreams, or hopes, and is the most ancient form of spiritual practice. So stick around, grab a cuppa, and open our mind to the experience of a conversation with Clark Strand. 
The conversation starts now. Okay, I am excited to talk with Clark Strand, an author I've admired since I read his first published book in 1994, Seeds from a Birch Tree, Writing Haiku and the Spiritual Journey. I've been a big fan since then, and I don't just admire him as an author, but as someone who is true to his vision in his writing, his lectures, and his activities focused on religion, spirituality, and ecology. As a former Zen monk, I have especially admired his seeming sense of a call to understand and communicate how religions and religious groups are compatible with real life in today's world. As an example, in 2015, Strand participated in the first White House U.S. Buddhist Leaders Conference and is quoted as saying, uh, quote, Buddhism was much more of a personal extreme sport. You went off to a monastery and meditated while your friends played golf. You were following some inner quest for enlightenment. But then came the maturation of Buddhism in America, where you look up from the meditation cushion and say, what does this actually mean in terms of my citizenry, profession, and relationship to others, unquote. And that's the question I continually ask of Buddhism. It's the foundational theme of this podcast and one that I explore from the view of authors, teachers, activists, religious thinkers, and leaders. But the focus of today's conversation with Clark is on his book, Waking the Buddha, How the Most Dynamic and Empowering Buddhist Movement in History is Changing Our Concept of Religion. It was published in 2014. It documented Clark's exploration of the Soka Gakkai International, or SGI, and totally changed my way of understanding and my view of SGI and the teaching, teachings of Nichiren. Soka Gakkai came into more recent cultural focus following the death of Tina Turner, a well-known Soka Gakkai practi practitioner who was very public about her practice of chanting Nam Myoho Renge Kyo and sharing how the practice helped her overcome many of her life's challenges. Because of this renewed exposure, I received a few comments, quite a few, I have to say, and questions from podcast listeners about, whoa, first of all, they were saying, I didn't know Tina Turner was Buddhist. And, <laughs> and, and what is it this, what is this thing she does? She doesn't meditate, she chants. So I invited Clark Strand on the podcast to talk about this. So to start the conversation, this is one of the things Clark wrote about the Soko Gakkai in the book. And I quote, one of the most striking things about the Soko Gakkai from a Buddhist point of view is its emphasis on attaining victory in ordinary life, sometimes under extraordinary circumstances, sometimes un under extraordinary circumstances. Members chant the mantra-like title of the <clears throat> Lotus Sutra, Nam Myoho Renge Kyo, as a way of harnessing the universal life force inherent in their own bodies and minds. That principle of interconnectedness corresponds with what we know today about particle physics and planetary ecology, both of which support the view that all things are intimately interrelated and dependent upon one another, and that nothing exists as separate and alone, unquote. So I jumped right in 
but I need to say hello to Clark. <laughs> so hello, Clark, and thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It's an honor to be sharing a conversation with you since I've read and admired your work well since, you know, seeds of a birch tree, uh, <laughs> uh, work in Buddhism, religion, haikus, study of koans. I've actually submitted a couple of koans and haikus and stuff in your stuff. So ecology and more. So hi, Clark. Hi, Wendy. Thanks so much for having me on. Oh, you're welcome. It's wonderful to have you on. So, you know, starting as a Zen monk, um, then you were senior editor of Tricycle Magazine. Then you continue to explore many different, you know, spiritual and religious groups. Um, maybe a good place to start this conversation is for you to give sort of a overview if you can, uh, of your <laughs> of your bio uh, with some detail about a central theme, if there is one, because I'm all I'm especially in your case, I'm really prompted to understand sort of the whys and the, even though I can guess some of it, the mo whys and the motivation behind all the different things you've been dipping into over the course of your life. So take it away. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's a tall order, but I'll try to keep it sort of uh, succinct. Uh, I was raised down south uh, in uh, Protestant tradition uh, that, uh, you know, although not fundamentalist, was certainly uh, hardly enlightened, uh, where uh, race and uh, gender rights and so forth and so on uh, is concerned. Um, you know, my father got up every morning and read the Bible at 5 a.m. So, you know, I grew up with a, a high degree of biblical literacy, I would say. Uh, but I pretty much wanted to reject most of that by the time I was a teenager. Uh, I remember uh, one day in particular, I was, um, you know, we, our habit was to go to First Presbyterian Church every Sunday uh, in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, this would have been in the uh, uh, you know early 1970s as a family, the whole family, right. and you know shine shoes, you know uh, suit and tie, the whole thing. And uh, I was sitting uh, there one day in the youth uh, Sunday school class uh, with uh, the instructors who were a, a you know a car salesman and his wife, and I began asking questions like, where does it say in the Bible? Uh, that communism is evil, that America is the best country in the world, uh, that uh, interracial marriage is forbidden and so forth, that homosexuality is a sin and so forth and so on. I went down the list, knowing, of course, that, you know, this this couple was, you know, functionally illiterate when it came to the Bible. They had no idea, like, you know, most Southern Protestants I met had no idea what was in the Bible, you know. And, uh, and furthermore, because of the social milieu at that time, which has only gotten worse since then, you know, felt no inclination to live by the moral code uh, that had been established by uh, Jesus in the Gospels. So there was no, there was no connection, as far as I could tell, whatsoever between, you know, what was happening in the lives of these people and the people who went to this church and their religion. So you know, I just pretty much soundly rejected it, and um, I began to read about Buddhism and haiku poetry. I discovered haiku specifically uh, early on uh, in my uh, college career, and uh, I was obsessed with it. The college I went to on the Cumberland Plateau in uh, Middle Tennessee called Sewanee, the University of the South, 
had the largest campus in the world uh, at that time. It was, uh, I believe, uh, maybe uh, 20,000 acres, something like wow. that. And, uh, you know, there were only a thousand students. So, you, you know, if you do the math, you realize there's quite a, uh, quite a lot of uh, real estate up there, places just to wander around. And I did that. And, uh, you know, I used to, uh, I, I'm fond of saying these days, because, you know, I spend most of my time teaching haiku poetry to people and uh, online. And I'm fond of saying that, you know, I graduated four years later with a degree in English literature, but my real degree uh, was in haiku poetry, and the university had nothing to do with it. My professors <laughs> were the, uh, you know, the streams and waterfalls, the thunderclouds, the flowers, the birds, all the, the many, uh, uh, you know, beings that I encountered in this wonderful sort of, you know, uh, uh, collegiate paradise that I had sort of stumbled into and, and, and lived in for four years. So um, I remember one day in particular, which I, I think back on is, uh, you know, if not the beginning of my spiritual path and somewhere very close to it, I was on my way to campus one morning and uh, I saw a blue sky blue morning glory uh, growing on a post and my girlfriend had given me a few months earlier a little book called 100 Haiku from the Japanese, right? And, uh, you know, I'd carried it around. I hadn't written any haiku yet, but I carried it around like, like a Bible. This was like the substitute for the Bible. This was, I think, you know, if I want to trace it back, the origin of this idea that, uh, you know, I, I came up with uh, – uh, about 20 years ago as part of a kind of an online think tank for Newsweek Washington Post called uh, the On Faith blog, that uh, my motto would be from thenceforth, ecology, not theology. And I really kind of think it started here. And I carried this book around. And uh, but that day I saw this flower and I thought, oh, this is what this book is about. This is what these poets are writing about. This is it. Right. And I sat there and I, I took out the book, took out a pencil, turned to the back of this book. There were a few blank pages. And I started scribbling my first attempts at haiku, counting out 575 on my fingers and writing. And I want to say at least two hours passed and I'd missed my morning classes. <laughs> and I hadn't written anything that, uh, you know, I, I thought of as, as being particularly good or even passable haiku, but I had... I had dipped my toes in the water and I had seen something that I felt, you know, an urgent desire to capture this little piece of sky floating at eye level right before me that seemed aware of my presence, right? I think that was when I began to feel that the, that the earth, the, the world and everything in it uh, is alive. Now, I know that you, uh, uh, you know, are a devotee of uh, Shin Buddhism, form of Pure Land Buddhism. And one of the greatest haiku poets of the 20th century was a man named Takahama Kiyoshi, who was a great Pure Land devotee. And he thought of haiku as the literature of paradise. But he wasn't talking necessarily about some paradise that you separate from this world that you go to. He was thinking about the world around us. And um, I found a, a book recently, recently translated called 100 Works of Kiyoshi, uh, which is... Uh, compiled uh, and translated by his daughter, who's also a famous haiku poet, his granddaughter, I'm, I'm sorry. And she says, you know, in 
in the com her commentaries on, I would say, at least half of these poems that Kyoshi was an animist, that his fundamental right. orientation in life was towards uh, uh, being part of a, a vast interpenetrative uh, 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 net of beings, all of which were alive and uh, living in, in, in harmony and cooperation with one another. He saw it as the task of the haiku poet to celebrate that, that, that life force and that interconnection. So anyway, 20 years passed, you know, I think <laughs> I became the vice president of the Haiku Society of America. I published a book, I judged contests, you know, I think I might have even started teaching haiku at that time. I probably did because the poem was written after um, uh, it was written after 1990, uh, and uh, when I started teaching haiku, I was walking down uh, Broadway, Upper Broadway, on the Upper West Side in Manhattan, and I passed a card shop. And in the window of this card shop was a little carousel with greeting cards and postcards on it. And there was a painting, not even a color painting, but a black and white sumi ink painting of a morning glory by, you know, some classic Japanese uh, uh, painter. And I saw it and I suddenly realized what the poem was that I'd been trying to write for, you know, 14, 15 years, 16 years. Uh, and I got it in a flash. It was the morning glory, a trumpet that plays nothing but the color blue. Oh, God. <laughs> morning glory, a trumpet that plays nothing but the color blue. And I remember going home that day and thinking, oh, yes, that's what I saw. That's what set me on this 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 path. So from there, you know, from haiku is an easy uh, uh, sidestep into Zen. Yeah, a library at the college I went to had vast holdings on uh, Asian literature and philosophy. I think they were mostly interested in Asian uh, uh, literature, uh, Japanese literature specifically because of its influence on on modern poetry. And so, whoever the librarian was there decided that uh, uh, he or she wanted to get every book on haiku ever published. So there were just shelves and shelves of Wonderful. translations and critical works and. Uh, and, you know, and, and dozens and do probably hundreds of books, even then already on Buddhism, including some of the classic uh, Zen texts, which I read and devoured. I dropped out um, of college in uh, 1977, abruptly after a spiritual experience I had reading a book on Zen. The experience itself, when I look back on it today, was uh, universal and uh, doesn't belong you know, you can't put it in any box, doesn't belong to any particular religion. Uh, but because I was reading a book on Zen when it happened, because it was a particular phrase that opened my mind suddenly and left it open, you know, wide open for like two weeks, lasted for about two weeks before it shut again. When that experience was over, I felt myself on a trajectory into Zen. I didn't know where else to turn. I knew that what I experienced was you know, as far as I could tell, the point to everything, point to life, right. uh, you know, the work of lifetimes. I couldn't figure out why it had happened. I've been, you know, I, I was always a big walker and I'd been walking for uh, hours and hours a day. My college girlfriend had broken up with me a few months earlier and it sort of plunged me into a spiritual crisis, which I solved by walking. So I sometimes think that the experiences, experiences like that are, they're implicit in the human psyche and that if we 
you know, are able to revert to some earlier version of ourselves, like, you know, the reset button on a computer, some earlier setting, <laughs> upper Paleolithic, perhaps, you know, like living like a hunter-gatherer, literally being outside in nature, uh, surrounded by uh, nothing that, you know, is man-made for, for hours and hours a day that the the brain, you know, the, the human soul and spirit and the body sort of like uh, begins to uh, intuit something. So I wanted that experience back and I was willing to do anything to get it. College didn't seem to hold any promise. I looked at my professors and they were suddenly, you know, these people who I had had such respect for before, even the wisest of them seemed like nothing but talking heads. They, they were like you know, the, the adults in the Snoopy uh, cartoons. Wah, 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 wah. That's all I heard. And uh, I remember going to, uh, I was told by the dean when I said I wanted to leave, you know, he said, uh, you know, well, you could talk to a a therapist if you're depressed. And I said, I'm not depressed. I'm in despair. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, you don't get this. We're talking about something much bigger than one particular college student, you know, feeling, you know, like I, I felt like I, you know, I had my hands on the Holy Grail and was sipping from it and then suddenly it was gone. So, uh, so I went whole hog into Zen. I dropped out for a year, went to a Zen monastery, Daivasatsu Zendo, where I received instruction, basic instruction in Zen. I went back to Atlanta and got a job as a construction worker and basically taught myself how to do Zazen for a year. And, uh, you know, sitting in full lotus until I cried from the pain, but I was so determined, nothing would dissuade me. And I think later, you know, when I went off and joined the monastery and became a monk, I had, a, a, I think, a reputation of, of, of being a, a real uh, hardliner. I mean, Daibasatsu back in those days was sort of the boot camp of American Zen, and in the boot camp, I became the drill sergeant. Oh, wow. So, you know, I, I was the, the head monk who shouted at everybody and, you know, maintained the discipline and all that. And I was, uh, you know, pretty well suited for it, you know, because my drive was so strong. Along about, uh, I want to say 1990, uh, I began to uh, realize something. I think part of it goes back to the experience I had as late in my late teens. And suddenly the realization that nobody really owned that, nobody could game that. Uh, that, that uh, you know, those sorts of experiences and the reality that they opened a door on uh, were there for the having for anyone and and that you could institutionalize that, build a, a hierarchical power structure around it, uh, mm-hmm. but, but you couldn't really uh, get there from here, right? You couldn't get there from Zen. Right. Uh, the people who got there from Zen were the people who were somehow able to step beyond it or outside of it, you know? And the institution just produced, you know, itself just produced the people I saw around me who were pretty much, um, you know, ideologues and devotees and and so forth and so on. And maybe very sincere people, but but I didn't look around me and see anybody who I felt was, uh, uh, you know, had had an experience like that. And uh, I remember going to my teacher and saying, you know, I'm out of here. You know, he he was a complicated figure who'd had many affairs. And so it was very easy to walk away from. People assumed at the time that I was leaving because of that, uh, because of his uh, philandering and, uh, you know, just outright gaslighting and abuse of of the women in the community. And certainly that has something to do with it, but it wasn't the only reason. Uh, I think I realized that... um, you know, that I, I needed to, to walk on what Reb Nachman of Breslov called uh, a road that no one has traveled. 
Reb Nachman was a Hasidic rabbi in the early 19th century, didn't live very long. He was a brilliant rabbi, uh, founder of the Breslover Hasidic community, and one of the great uh, modern Jewish mystics. And Reb Nachman had a, uh, a metaphor that he called bypassing the bandits. He said mm -hmm. that when you travel on a road that is well known to people, there are bandits waiting to steal from you at every step of the way. But when you follow a path that is unknown to anyone, then they are there, they are not there uh, to waylay you. And what he was talking about was conventional religion and conventional approach to religion. And what he I think what he was saying was basically what I experienced was right. that the 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 uh, concerns of religion were not the really ultimately the concerns of the spirit, the concerns of the institution to perpetuate itself and to bolster its own authority and, you know, codify its own ideas and so forth and so on was not, you know, really what it was about. And so I, you know, I left, went to work for Tricycle, the Buddhist Review as its first senior editor and uh, found myself in the unenviable position of you know, stepping right into the enormous shitstorm that was all of the uh, Asian and American teachers who were found to be, uh, you know, just the worst sort of people. These are people we had idealized for, uh, you know, sometimes for decades. And, you know, I, you know, I uh, did, you know, some, you know, what I guess today you would call investigative journalism, talked to various people, followed up on leads and, you know, discovered that, that some of them were basically criminals. And these were very famous teachers. And, uh, you know, and then I think at that point, I began to really sort of come to, to terms with the fact that my own teacher had been such a complicated person that I had spent so much time really unwilling to see that and that he was more deeply morally compromised. When a few years later, a, after I left Tricycle and started writing books of my own, um, a um, New York Times investigative journalist called me to ask if allegations of abuse uh, uh, on the part of my teacher uh, were true. And he told me I was the first person he had called, and I wasn't surprised, you know. Mm -hmm. So we had had uh, a tricycle. We had uh, uh, basically created an expose about him, but he uh, his lawyers got to the principals involved and threatened them with legal action. And so they pulled out. We couldn't run the article. So I'm assuming that probably uh, this man got word of that and called me. And I told him everything I knew. But what I didn't tell him, what haunted me later, uh, was the thought that during all these years that I studied in this institution, I suddenly drifted in the direction of placing uh, that institutional uh, structure of authority uh, above other considerations, so that I was actually part of the problem. I was participating in it. I was colluding with it. Uh, and uh, that really, that will change you when you, when you understand how uh, uh, bolstering up uh, religious authority and religious uh, institutionalism uh, carries with it inherent risks uh, to real people. Uh, that that really that really alters your perception of reality in the world around you. I got married. I had kids. Um, I continued to study in all the many different religious traditions: Buddhist, Christian, Jewish, you name it. I spent twenty years, in retrospect, trying to get patriarchy right. <laughs> there was some part of me that believed, uh, you know, with a little tinkering, it's just that it hasn't been done right. 
you know? There's got to be one. There's got to be one, right? You know, and in fairness, there, there, there always were. There were always individuals who, who you know, stepped to the side. St. Francis of Assisi is a great example. And there, there were others as well in, in all these different traditions. Uh, but but the, inevitably what happens is these, you know, these traditions get, uh, structured people, the people who get involved in them become, you know, are, are more interested in, in uh, power, keeping the money where it is, keeping the power where it is, than they are with, uh, you know, the lives of, of uh, the people who are uh, devoted to the institution, whatever it is. So I think right around that time, I began to discover a lot of things all at once. One thing I learned was that the best stuff I got from Zen was the folk Buddhism that came from my teachers unbeknownst to them. They didn't even know they were holders of it, really. And they passed it along from their mothers and grandmothers and grandfathers and from the uh, people, you know, ordinary people who sort of lived around them. And I, I took in a lot of this folk Buddhism about ancestor practice, uh, yeah. working with the dead, magic, yeah. really what today we really call magic, mantra practice, things like that, that were not really front and center where, you know, sort of Zen teaching was concerned, but were nevertheless there. And I got that transmitted to me. And so I started, you know, I guess about maybe 15 or 16 years ago to delve into what I would call the more folk traditions of uh, Buddhism and, and other religions. And I basically discovered that there was always, in all of these religious traditions, a religion within a religion. Yeah. Which was, you know, it wasn't the what what most people would tell you, which is the esoteric dimension that is only available to the adepts. But right. rather, it was the inner tradition that was only available to the simple and to yeah. the people who really needed it. The people whose lives, you know, people who in some cases only had that. They only had prayer, right? right that was all right. they had. They only had this mantra that they were devoted to. And, you know, and, and people who, you know, allowed these practices to make them very simple and humble. And so, uh, you know, once I discovered that there was this religion within a religion, I began to study it fanatically. And what I discovered in every case was that its basis was always ecological rather than theological, right? Mm -hmm. It wasn't highbrow. It wasn't so much about the mind as it was about the body. It wasn't about the aims of religion, but it was about the ordinary realities of, of real people uh, living, you know, and struggling in the, in the world. So I found in the, you know, the, the tradition in Shin Buddhism of the Myokonin, you know, Myokonin, the, right. you know these, these saints who are just ordinary people, usually not educated, sometimes illiterate, right? right, right. Who, who are some of the wisest teachers in the tradition. Uh, I've met all kinds of people, uh, you know, in Nishiren Buddhism, in the Soka Gakkai, who are just ordinary people, but who had deep, profound wisdom. You know, uh, there was a, one young man who's since departed, a man named uh, Jack, local person. And uh, when he came out to teach me how to do Nishiren Buddhist chanting, because I got very fascinated with it and decided I had to learn about it, wrote articles about it. So, uh, you know, I was, uh, you know, they sent somebody out to sort of get me set up and help me learn how to chant and everything. And this guy arrived and I thought, this is the person and forget me. <laughs> Forgive me for being 
uh, you know, proud of this yeah. fact. But at that point in my, you know, in my studies, I had recently been published a lot of books. I've been, <clears throat> I had articles in the Wall Street Journal, various places, you know, as a former senior editor of Tricycle. And the person the Sokogakai sent out didn't have, I think, barely had a high school education, right? And was just, you know, he ran a, he was like a personal trainer at a gym. I thought, this is the person they send to teach me how to do this practice? Yeah. Boy, yeah. let me tell you what, this guy was a heavy hitter. Yep. This guy had used that practice to utterly transform his life from the bottom up. Wow. <laughs> this, your story is almost more amazing as you tell it than I was amazed thinking about what the story was beyond because it was like I knew there was going to be the the theme of the ecology right. uh, and and uh the then you really hooked me with the myoconin but I should have thought of that um because that's really where we're going here you know when I uh when I said in my intro that it's these the the passing of Tina Turner and people reaching out to me and like saying, wow, I didn't know she was a Buddhist and what is this thing that she does? And, you know, cause I get questions all the time because, because I am, you know, I, I I'm out as a primarily Shin practitioner. It's like, um, do you meditate? Don't you meditate? And it's like, well, yeah, you know, sometimes I do, <laughs> sometimes I don't. But then it's like people get so confused. If you're a Buddhist, then what is this other stuff that's going on? So anyway, this was the impetus for me to, first of all, reread your book, Waking the Buddha. Because so I did, although I think it's like the third time I reread your book. And then uh, reach out to you about, you know, what Soko Gakkai is all about. Um, so... You you sort of answered my next question about you weren't a practitioner of Soka Gakkai, but you got well. I, well, I was. I was a uh, I was a practitioner, but I was never a um, I want to say a devotee or an exclusive uh -huh. devotee. You know, people who practice Nishiran Buddhism tend to be exclusively uh, Nishiran Buddhists rather than right, right. I call hyphenated Buddhists, right? Like Jewish Buddhists or, you know, Zen Shen or whatever. You know, they tend to be whole hog uh, into Nishrin Buddhism. And uh, so I wasn't that. And uh, what happened was in, in 2003, when uh, uh, the U.S. was uh, mounting, uh, you know, its, its uh, military forces to invade Iraq, uh, I was very struck by the fact that, you know, none of my peers uh, at that time, and, uh, you know, despite, you know, their their efforts at revisionism since then, <laughs> okay, I mean, actually, none of my peers. I mean, these were the people who, you know, I, I basically was, a, before I left, was a, a Zen teacher. And uh, so, and I was friends with all these people who later went on to become Zen teachers and teachers in various other Buddhist traditions. And none of them were taking a really vigorous uh, stance, uh, you know, at post 9-11 uh, against the war. And uh, I was really stunned by this. And, uh, you know, my wife and I and our young children went to what was then the largest ever organized war anti-war protest in human history in Manhattan. And, uh, you know, we're, and, and while I was down there, you know, I, I began sort of thinking, you know, there must be uh, some form of Buddhism uh, that isn't, uh, uh, you know, you know, doesn't have its head in the sand about what's going on. Uh, 
Right. And, um, you know, I think it, by that time, I think I'd begun to realize that as religion, you know, Buddhism is is historically an accommodationist religion. It moves into an area and it accommodates itself to power. Shakyamuni was a prince and he thought like a prince, right? Thought like, you know, really? person. Right. he's a privileged person. And he thought for, for all of his days like a privileged person. And, uh, and that created problems in early Buddhism, which nearly destroyed it. You know, it basically is religion for the elite. Uh, right. Mahayana Buddhism came in and, and basically said, this doesn't work. This won't last. Uh, this right. does not address uh, uh, human suffering except for the people with disposable time and income to pursue the life of an monastic. That was always the problem. Right. Uh, the Buddha created a religion that relied on people having disposable time and income. Sounds and familiar. Relied on, and it relied, yeah, and it relied on, on patronage, you know, wealthy patronage. And with right. all that money comes responsibility, and there are all kinds of compromises that you have to make. And so Buddhism, you know, finally, I think with the Mahayana begins to find its footing as a world religion. I do not think of of think that Theravada Buddhism would have ever become a world religion uh, because it just did not, uh, you know, as as wonderful a tradition as that is, uh, it was it did not uh, address the needs of ordinary people to the degree that it would need to in order to spread as it has. Uh, and so anyway, so I knew that. I knew in, in theory or in principle that uh, that Buddhism did not, you know, it was not a religion based in uh, what I would call a prophetic or uh, tradition. Prophetic traditions are protest traditions, right? Right, right. And, you know, they have their own problems. You know, a self-righteous a person, you know, who, who who brings up within them the sort of self-righteous energy yeah, exactly. to protest the social order, you know, is just the next despot waiting in the wings, right? <laughs> so you get the worst possible, you know, abuses and genocides. Don't see as many genocides in Buddhism, right? Not as so, much. So each of these religions has a constitutional flaw. That uh, you know is sort of the seeds, the seeds of its own doing, and it usually goes back to the founder. What was the blind spot of the founder? What did the founder? What was the founder not able to see? Buddha wasn't able to see family. Right. You know, he he abandoned his wife and child and went off into the woods, and for the rest of his days, you know, his, uh, family and women specifically were were a blind spot for him, and the the religion itself begins to address this as time goes on. And so I thought, you know, is Buddhism just really, you know, like sort of like, you know, except for those Vietnamese monks sort of burning themselves to protest the war? I mean, is it just the occasional individual who who feels, uh, you know, a conscience uh, with, you know, the, who, who feels such a, a strong uh, uh, antipathy to war and violence that they are willing to, uh, you know, to stand up and make a, make a statement, even the ultimate statement? And I then I discovered the Soka Gakkai. I discovered that uh, Nichiren Buddhism itself, you know, had its roots uh, in uh, uh, you know in opposing uh, military uh, might uh, and uh, you know in championing the the poor and the disenfranchised, much like uh, uh, Honen and Shinran did. Right. These were the religions of the Kamakura era, with the exception of Dogen, who seems not to have thought much about war or about right. anybody but but you know the the you know the the the, the you know the fine sons and 
uh, you know, of, of the aristocracy who made their way, <laughs> you know, to his temple. Uh, you know, the um, uh, I, I began to realize that uh, Nishiran Buddhism was the exception. And then I studied Sokogakai and I realized that, you know, as a modern version of Nishiran Buddhism, uh, it was uh, grounded or had its foundational story in protest against World War II. And uh, that, in fact, its, its founders, uh, you know, were imprisoned as thought criminals during World War II. So I got very fascinated by that. Then I discovered that the Soka Gakkai was virtually the only uh, ethnically uh, diverse and racially diverse Buddhist right. organization really anywhere in the world, right? It wasn't just in America. In America, it was obvious because we are a nation of, 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 of you know, a pluralistic nation of all different types of people, a melting pot. So when the Soka Gakkai came here, it just recruited uh, members from all levels of society and all races, right? They were they were effectively colorblind, and uh, so they instantly became, you know, the most most diverse Buddhist organization in the world, and certainly by far the most in America. Because American Buddhism followed the same pattern of Buddhism wherever it traveled, which was that it first goes to the elite, to the intellectuals, right. it appeals to people with money and power. They build the temples, right? And, you know, the, the earliest wave of students are, are typically drawn from, uh, you know, the upper echelons of society. Well, Soka Gakkai came in and became, you know, a form of Buddhism, you know, I think much looked down upon initially by, you know, practitioners of Zen and Tibetan Buddhism, right? I remember people always saying things like, they chant for cars, don't they? That's, yeah, well, right? see, that was my, when I said that you changed my mind about a lot of this, even though I no. was a practicing Buddhist for a long time and in, in, in the ministry studies, it was like, Soka Gakkai, that's all, it was like the prosperity gospel kind of stuff. It's like, yeah, that they, right. like some people to this day still ask me, oh, is that the one that chants for Cadillacs? Yeah, well, that's a kind of a, uh, to me, it was. It's it's it 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 highlights two main things. Is like you said, it's not it's not you know the 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 people with disposable time and income. It highlights that that's what the Buddhism uh, in America has always been. But it also highlights racism. I mean, clearly, yeah, yeah, it does, it does. And you know, the, I interviewed Tina Turner uh, for Tricycle uh, before she died. I was fortunate, I yeah. And, uh, you know, Tina's story, uh, you know, definitely Amazing. a rags to riches sort of story. You know, she grew up, a, uh, you know, at stone's throw from where I lived as a young boy in Tennessee. But boy, our realities could not possibly have been more different. My father was uh, at that time the associate headmaster of a private school uh, just outside of Memphis. And she was, I want to say her town was maybe 40, 50 miles from there. Uh, you know, and she grew up in completely different circumstances. And the racial discrimination, the economic disparity was just, uh, you know, astounding. But um, she came into Buddhism. And in her case, it wasn't, you know, just worldly benefits that she was chanting for. She'd begun to experience some success by the time she got involved in B Buddhism, but get herself out of a terribly abusive uh, 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 relationship, right? right? Right and, right, and chanting was the way that she that she did that. I had a friend who is a, a Zen uh, priest who uh, actually said this to me. They chant for cars, don't they? Right. Oh, I've heard that before. But he actually said it to me at one point when he discovered that 
against all expectation. I had suddenly become fascinated by the Soka Gakkai. I had even <laughs> begun doing its practice in order to learn about it. I'd made two trips to Japan, so forth and so on. So he was very uh, curious about this and, and quite dismissive of it. They chant for cars, don't they? And I thought for a moment, and I looked at him, and I said, I said, you don't have a car, do you? He says, no. He said, but the monastery owns a car, which you use. He says, yes. I said, and you gave up everything to become a Zen monk, right? Pretty much all your property. He said, yes. I said, how much did you give up? What did you give up? What did you have to give up? And over the course of this conversation, it came out that, you know, he had led an extremely privileged life, right? right. And that, you know, he never had to think about whether he had a car to get to work. He never really had to worry about having a job, right? He could just step right into all kinds of opportunities. You know, I think there's there's something admirable in the fact that, you know, rather than just, you know, I don't know, go to get an MBA at Harvard or whatever, like his friends, he chose a spiritual life and, right. you know, the, a simple simpler life of service instead, as much to his benefit. And yet it was so hard for him to see his own privilege. But nearly yeah. it was invisible to him. They, it was invisible to him that, that he could give up everything because he had everything, right? Yeah. person who doesn't have everything, person who has so little, they really have basically nothing to give up. They have to worry about how they're going to get to work. They have to worry about health care, buying diapers and formula, things like that. This is the level that people are often at when they come to what I will loosely call folk Buddhist traditions. Yeah. Okay, and by so folk that, Buddhist yeah. traditions, I don't necessarily mean just, you know, the old granny wisdom of Shin Buddhism or Nishiran Buddhism or even Zen Buddhism. I'm really talking about traditions that because they focus on ordinary life and ordinary people tend to draw their wisdom from below rather yeah. than from the august, rarefied teachings mm -hmm. of a priestly elite, right? Yeah. You know, and that's the thing. It's like you talk about this in your book, and it's it's highlighted a, a lot. Is that and 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 this seems to be like sort of the disconnect to most people in America. They don't, they just can't put together this this business about chanting for something, you know. And 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 it it is that, but it isn't that. Um, and you wrote in your book that uh. Uh, you went on to write about how um, the 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 chanting is is connecting to the con interconnectedness. It's an actual demonstration of proof of what we Buddhists like pr talk about in theory. Yeah, right, you know what I mean. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. theory. And you say um, that 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 this is that they're demonstrating actual proof of the you know not That's only right. a, a personal uh inner transformation which right. is what sort of happened with tina turner um but as a way of demonstrating how these changes can help others you right. know like if right. if if right. i if i undergo this change and people like like tina you know was able to leave this 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 uh, terribly abusive relationship and able to get back on our feet even though she left everything and even left the music business and had to start from scratch um but they they if people see this then yeah that then they they see well how did you do that and that's sort of like the spirit and you you wrote this it's they they, they not only change maybe their next door neighbor or their friend or their co-worker but quote 
in their community, their environment, and ultimately the world at large. Now, unquote, that's a pretty big idea. Can you talk more about that big idea? Well, and here yeah. we're talking about yeah. chanting, uh, personal chanting, personal transformation, and then changing the world, right? Right, right. Well, uh, you know, uh, it, it's, it's hard to know where to start, because we can just sort of start anywhere. Let's start at the very beginning. Okay. When, when Nishiran Buddhism first came to America, it was uh, through the, uh, primarily through the wives of U.S. servicemen who had been stationed in Japan, many of whom were African-American. They married Japanese women. They came back. And these women were, were Sokogakai members. They were Nishiran Buddhists, belonged specifically to the Sokogakai. Hmm. They had oftentimes completely rebuilt their lives from ill health, from poverty, uh, from, you know, lost homes, lost family members, you know, families shattered by the violence of the war, loss of life, loss of parents and siblings and so forth and so on. And they had used chanting to really rebuild their lives. And they came to America. And because uh, Nishiran Buddhism is practiced for oneself and for others, right, uh, they very much felt the need to share this and to spread the spread the word about this, right? And so they came to this country and they began to just ask anybody they met if they wanted <laughs> to try chanting. Many of them uh, in the beginning couldn't speak English very well. So they would say something like, you come, chant, be happy. <laughs> right? That was yeah. the gospel. You come, chant, be happy. Right? And th these were, you know, these were smart women, you know, who you know, uh, in their own language, you know, they, they were well-spoken, many of them. Some of them were educated, not all. And, uh, but but they were reduced to just the simplest, you know, possible appeal to people. And uh, I interviewed a lot of people who met this first wave, you know, of, mm -hmm. of uh, you know, people doing, quote, shakabuku or conversion, right? Reaching right. out to and, and pulling people into the community, showing them how to chant and all that. And they told me that that they would, you know, that these women were really strangely persuasive. They seemed happy. They seemed to have their feet under them spiritually. They were just ordinary people, but they seemed to have something. And uh, so, so, you know, these people, mostly hippies, you know, uh, would say, okay, I'll do it. And they would go to a meeting. And they would chant Nam Yoho Renge Kyo. And they would be told that you can chant for your heart's desire, whatever it is. Whatever it is doesn't matter because once you start to chant for your heart's desire and you begin to dance with the universe through this chanting practice, right? Then things begin to happen and you find yourself on what the uh, current uh, uh, Soka Gakkai uh, International President, Dai Sakokita, calls the orbit of Buddhahood. You find yourself in that orbit. So wherever you start isn't necessarily where you end up. So you might start <laughs> chanting for a car or whatever. I mean, some of the one one person I interviewed said that that he had asked somewhat daringly and snidely one of these little Japanese women. He had said, "Can I chant for drugs and sex?" <laughs> he said, "Oh yes, yes, yes. You can chant for drugs and sex." And he said he was taken aback. He thought, well, okay then, right? <laughs> this was the 1960s. You know, it was the drug culture and the sexual revolution was in its fall. He says, 
you know, he couldn't he couldn't say that. Can I pray the Our Father? He couldn't go to his <laughs> Catholic priest. I can pray the Our Father for drugs and sex, right? You couldn't say that. But these women were unflappable, yeah, because they had the confidence that it isn't. You can start from anywhere, and once you're in this orbit of Buddhahood and you continue chanting, suddenly you find yourself concerned with with world peace. Suddenly you can find yourself working on behalf of your community. Suddenly you find that your own life, which might have been in great disarray, uh, your own health, which might have been precarious, you suddenly find yourself embodying this kind of primal life force that's activated through this chanting practice and by sharing it with other people. And suddenly you have something to offer the world. So you begin to offer it whatever way is presents itself you know, people ended up getting uh, elected to political office. Other people, right. uh, you know, entered the healthcare professions. There were entertainers. There were all kinds of people. Tina Turner shared shared her faith, you know, uh, through books and interviews. And it wasn't just getting out of the relationship with Ike. You know, she used chanting to uh, uh, to build her, you know, to stage her comeback and to build her career right. from that point on, to write her books and so forth and so on. She's very transparent about it. Uh, you know, this was this was the spiritual foundation for her for her success. And so, um, you know, yes, this this chanting meets you where you are. But you don't have yeah. to be at a very lofty level to begin it. You know, the same is true in, in uh, Shin Buddhist practice and pure land practice in general. Anyone can can say uh, Namu Amida Butsu, right? right? Anyone can can, uh, uh, you know, rely for uh, for their 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 happiness and their health uh, on the compassion of, of Amitabha Buddha. Uh, you know, I'm very uh, uh, struck by the fact that these Kamakura era, era reformers right. from the you know basically 11th through or the 12th through 13th centuries uh, were mostly concerned with ordinary people and how to address their needs. So that there was a very simple practice, but a very profound practice that anyone could do that had enormous payoff. I wrote a, year, uh, a book some years ago, which I've yet to publish. Uh, it's, it's a very short book. It's about maybe 12,000 words long called The One-Page Buddha. Oh, and it. <laughs> it was a maybe someday I'll, I'll I'll publish it. It's called the One Page Buddha, and uh, it is basically a commentary on Honen, the founder of Japanese yep. Pure Land Buddhism. His final will and testament. It's called the Ichimai Kishimon. It's basically a one page document. And what happened was, as Honen was about to die, uh, he called uh, his uh, one of his closest disciples to him and asked for a sheet of paper. And then he wrote down the essence of the Pure Land teaching in very plain spoken, oh, unambiguous terms in one page. And then he dipped his hands, both hands in ink, and placed them on the paper to seal it as his teaching, his complete teaching, right? right. I've often thought the fact that he signed with both hands rather than one was, was like a way of saying, I'm not holding anything back. There's nothing oh. behind my back in my other hands. This is the complete teaching, as simple as it is. And it's basically just, if you if you recite Namu Amida Butsu in the faith uh, that you are saved by Amida, it will be so. There's nothing more to it than that. It's that simple. So uh, 
I was very, this was early on in my, you know, sort of quest to recover the ecological teachings uh, that were implicit in the teachings of Buddhism, Hinduism, Christianity, uh, Judaism, Islam, and so forth and so on. So I was going back through all these spiritual texts, Book of Job, Song of Songs in the Bible, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, uh, certain certain uh, uh, surah from uh, uh, from the uh, Quran and so forth and so on, the Lotus Sutra. I was going back through these texts and looking for their 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 ecological teachings. I basically decided that anything that wasn't ecologically valid, I would just throw it out. Okay. So I threw out entire sutras. I just said, okay, fine. Anyone can read this if they want to. But these sutras are just about Buddhism. They're not about anything but Buddhism. They're right. not about life. They're not about ecology. They're not about the planet. They're not about wisdom. They're just about Buddhism. And most texts were like that. Much of the Bible was just about the Bible, mm. just about Judaism, Christianity, or you know, it, it, they 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 didn't they weren't about anything real, right. and I just threw them out. But I found a text that had deep ecological wisdom, and I thought, this this is what we should be reading. This is what we should cling to. This is what should, we should understand and treasure because this is equal to the times ahead. This this will guide us uh, on the path forward, right through through a period of of uh, climate climate disarray and eco environmental collapse, ecological collapse, sixth extinction. So I became obsessed with this. But early on, I became fascinated with Japanese Pure Land Buddhism. And I went back and I, I re, you know, revised these texts. The Pure Land tradition was the only tradition in Buddhism that, to my mind, was unambiguously from beginning to end based in ecology. It, it seems that way. No, I had never uh, twisted my head to see it that way. But yeah, absolutely. Most of the Lotus Sutra is. Yeah. Uh, uh, there are other sutras that are, but 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 the the Pure Land Sutras are are deeply grounded in eco ecological way of thinking. Right. And uh, mostly because they they deal so much with death and the transition from birth to death. Uh, and so I uh, I wrote an ecological commentary for a group of English Pure Land Buddhists who heard me talk about this little one-page document. I said, everything you need to know about Buddhism is on this one page. It's the one-page Buddha, right? If you understand this, you understand the ecological teachings of Buddhism. It's all there. Honan didn't hold anything back. So I gave a series of, you know, I gave basically a line-by-line -line commentary on this old early form of social media uh, on the internet. It's like about 20 years ago. And uh, these English Pure Land Buddhists said, wow, you should really collect these in a book. So I went back and I found all the, you know, the the entries I had made on this little, I think it was Ning platform or something like that, you know. And I, I, I collected all the comments together and put them in a book and lightly revised it and, you know, stuck it back in my internet, I mean, in my computer file somewhere where it still remains. Oh. Uh, but basically, uh, what it says is that, um, you know, all beings are are saved. All beings are bodhisattvas because we are all part of one whole uh, that is interconnected and to which nothing can be added and nothing can be taken away. Right. The other, the the uh, ecology version of Honan's one-page document uh, was composed by a group called uh, Friends of the Earth for the first ever uh, 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 international UN 
uh, uh, meeting to talk about the global ecology and the environment. This was back in, I want to say, 1970 or 72, very early on. And uh, they met uh, in, at the Stockholm conference. And at the end of the conference, where they had representatives from all over the world coming together to talk about protecting the natural environment, about the facts, you know, because of climatological changes, which they were just beginning to, to, to figure out and, right. and pesticides and so forth and so on. And uh, the Friends of the Earth, this one group, sort of like the poetic arm of this movement, came up with a statement that to me reads like Honan's one-page document. <laughs> I don't have it handy, but I can remember the, the, the gist of it. It said that everything on Earth is composed of chemicals that are interrelated to one another and connected to one another in vast chains. All of life consumes all of the rest of life. All of the sunlight that falls to earth that can be used is used. And only sunlight is added to the earth. Nothing else comes from outside of it. Within the earth is everything that is necessary for life. And all of these chemicals are cycled through these vast chains of plant and animal life and circle back again to the beginning. Thus has it always been. They might have just as well have added world without end. Amen. <laughs> right. Absolutely. I mean, it's just it was a beautiful document and, and a very poetic way of saying what what Pureland Buddhists, you know, intuited 2000 years ago, which is that we live basically in the pure land yeah. and the only way that you know one can be say it's one can say that one's birth in the pure land is guaranteed just by saying the words namo amida butsu is if it's already true See, is if saying it it's like the wizard of oz you know like yeah. why where i come <laughs> right. from there are people who don't have nearly as much courage as you have but they have something you don't have which is a medal Right. And the wizard yeah. gives the cowardly lion a medal. Right. He's already he's already demonstrated his courage. He's already found it. Right. You know, I have to interrupt you because I have to say you you touched on something that is, is the same as the, the the sort of the the degradation of of uh, uh, SGI practitioners uh, right. as Channing for Cadillacs. You right. know, is sort of the traditional way of presenting Pure Land Buddhism was uh, from, you know, sort of the 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 priesthood the hierarchy the tendai monastery and it was like Conan and Shinran you know broke away from this but you, you know it still is it, it still is pervasive in thought oh you're the people that pray to Amida to save you and right. you you're the people who think you were going to be born in the pure land in the next life without ever understanding this sort of the whole point of what you just said it's like it's assured i mean is i mean it's that's how could they have been even right. said if it wasn't already true right, right? well <laughs> let, let's let's unpack that a little bit for your listeners because you know it's all there in the basic you know uh mythic structure about amita in the story the right. teaching is all there and what it says is that countless countless eons ago and if you do the math, you figure out that 
we're talking about a time before the creation of the known universe, right? right, right. Because if you figure out that, that, you know, Buddhism loves large numbers. <laughs> yes. The Pure Land Sutra has these very large numbers. And Dharmakara Bodhisattva is supposed to have lived long before the historical Buddha, so long before, in fact, that the universe itself, as we know it, probably hasn't even been created yet. A hundred million kalpas or whatever. Right, yeah, exactly. Right. We're talking a long, 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 long time ago. Another reality, perhaps. There was this bodhisattva named Dharmakara. Dharmakara vowed, apparently, he took these, you know, what is it, 48 vows, I think? 48 vows to start. 48 yeah, vows, yeah. right. And, uh, you know, uh, it's because he wanted to become a Buddha. But there was a caveat to it, you know, apparently, you know, billions and trillions of years ago before, you know, our world came to be and the Buddha was even a gleam in his father's eye, right? <laughs> there were apparently people already becoming Buddhas or creatures or beings or aliens or whatever already becoming Buddhas. This was already a thing, right? People could become Buddhas. But what's special about this particular narrative is that this Buddha says, yeah, I don't feel so good about being a Buddha because what happens? You get squirted out of the universe like a giant watermelon seed and you're exempt from suffering from there on, yeah, right? Yeah. What kind of life would that be? What kind of enlightenment is that if yeah. you leave everybody suffering behind? So there's this sort of, you know, Amida is in a certain way, and Dharmakara is the archetypal bodhisattva, you know, right. like Avalokiteshvara, because Dharmakara says, no, I can't do that. The only way I'll become a Buddha is if anybody, and I mean anybody, can re be reborn in a pure land where it's effortless to become a Buddha, where merely to be born there is to become a Buddha, right? Where no right. particular special effort is required. The only way I'll do that is if anybody, without exception, who calls upon my name can instantly or can be reborn in, in my pure land, right? And so he says, and if that doesn't happen, I refuse. I, <laughs> I will be. not become a Buddha. Right. Right. So this is this wonderful little tautology. It's this little logical trick that defies the mind. Because you read the story and you go, well, okay, so there's Dharmakara. <laughs> yeah, right. He's not going to become a Buddha unless he succeeds in creating this pure land where to get there, the only thing anybody has to do is call his name. But this happened trillions of years ago. It's already a fait accompli. Our, right. our universe was created based on the, the template of, of Amida having attained Buddhahood already. Right. And so our very reality, you know, the, the physical structure of our universe, its laws, its immutable laws, its mysteries, all of these based on the funda one fundamental idea, which is that all beings, just as they are, are saved, are included, are, are redeemed, right? Right. The only way to make sense of this is ecologically. The only way to make sense of this and to make any kind of a logical sense of it that doesn't just rely on magic or some belief in some separate realm is through ecology. And the moment we understand what the friends of the earth were saying about the earth being a unitary whole organism that includes right. all of us and recycles, endlessly recycles all of us and redeems all of us and reuses all of us, right? And keeps all of us in play. 
then only then are we capable of understanding this quote primal vow of Amida, yeah, which includes all and forsakes none, right? That's right. And so, you know, I, I, I think once I realized that, I think this is sort of my first point of contact with the real deep ecology, ecological teachings uh, of a major uh, faith tradition. After that, I went back to the book of Job. I found out that it was, it was you know, an ecological uh, document from beginning to end. I went back to the Song of Songs, found the same thing. Discovered in the Catholic Rosary, the rudiments of it. Yeah, not just the rudiments, but the fulfillment of it through its 15 mysteries tell the same story. And so these these this wisdom, you know, has been hidden there by our ancestors, mostly by the old old grannies who sort of, you know, hid it in plain sight. I think the rosary as a as a practice is, a, you know, as practiced by, you know, legions of uh, of Catholics, uh, you know, for the past thousand years, the rosary basically had encoded in it all of the deepest mystery, uh, the deepest teachings of the Mediterranean mystery cults, which were deeply rooted in an ecological way of thinking, right? Yeah. And it basically got smuggled down through the centuries, you know, right under the eyes of the Catholic hierarchy. You didn't really understand it or know what it was, what was there. But yeah, the ordinary yeah. people intuited it and knew what it was about. And that's the thing. I think that that this is that ordinary people thing that I really wanted to like circle around, which you've done naturally without me having to say a thing. <laughs> but is is the I want to get into the chanting just a bit because that's the thing that still sort of hangs people up, and I that really ties in with the rosary. It's no, it's the same thing. Um, you know, chanting is essentially a a, a a part of almost all religions or subsects of religions and spiritual organizations all throughout, um, except for maybe, you know, the, the meditation only practices and the ubiquitous mindfulness of today's world. Um, I have practiced both in Tibet. I was a primarily a Tibetan Buddhist practitioner and like how you left college and left then I left Tibetan Buddhism and ended up becoming a, uh, a Shin practitioner. But, you know, I chanted with my Sangha in uh, Tibetan, in Tibetan practice. And now I chant the Nembutsu. And, and so let's talk a little bit about chanting. What does chanting do? What is if you will, you know, Ian, you can bring the rosary into this too. It's like, what is the mechanism? But the SGI talks about this a lot, the, the mechanism a bit. Um, what is the mechanism? I think uh, D.T. Suzuki, and I'm, th I'm not sure, that's what I was remembering. I think he said uh, the Nembutsu is Zazen, Zazen is the Nembutsu. So he, he equated it as meditation. But Yet the SGI seemed to talk about it was in such energetic terms, like, you mm. know, focusing on what you want, turning it into something. Whereas like um, I see in most of the Nambutsu chanting, it's not like we're trying to have something happen to start. We're, we're just saying the name because that's, that's what happens. But um so there's sort of this stigma about this. So, so can you talk more about chanting in general? And if you will, like touch on, you know, the rosary a bit, like I mentioned to you at the beginning, my actual, my partner, my wife, 
got, got turned on to the rosary through you and your wife, <laughs> the, the way of the rose and uh, the, your, the book, the way of the rose and now, and the group as well. So I don't know, you can go wherever you want to go. Cause you, I, I trust you. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, well, you know, we, we can basically come at it from just about anywhere. So let's, uh, since, since this is a Buddhism podcast, let's start there. Okay. And then we'll go back and talk about uh, about the rosary as well. Um, you know, chanting has always been uh, a part of Buddhist tradition. And, uh, and, and for that matter, chanting is part of just about any tradition. I, I don't know that apart from mindfulness, which is this one teaching which has been extracted and commodified, Right. You know, and and made into a you know commercially motivated practice, right? Right. Or utilitarian practice, you know, as it's used by the military and and uh, corporate America and so forth and so on. You know, apart from that, I don't think there are many you know quote pure meditative traditions that don't also involve some element of chanting. Uh, chanting to give voice to one's intentions, uh, to give voice to one's dreams or hopes to. Offer devotion. This is very, you know, foundational and basic to human beings, going all the way back to the Paleolithic. You know, people. Uh, there was a man named uh, Fritz Stahl, uh, who was the uh, during his lifetime, I think, the form considered generally the foremost, um, uh, you know, one of the foremost endologists and experts on mantra in the world. Hmm. Uh, Stahl uh, uh, compared mantra to bird song. In its extreme huh. durability and antiquity, Stahl believed that mantras preceded human language and that, in fact, human language mm. probably evolved out of mantras. He said that mantras were uh, incantations or formulas that were repeated to accompany certain rituals, just as birds will sing certain calls as mating calls or certain calls when they're building nests or at dusk and so forth and so on. Uh, he said that uh, human beings had these utterances long, long before they even developed what we would call, uh, uh, you know, spoken, you know, organized, systematized spoken language. Certainly long, long before there was anything like uh, an alphabet or alphabetical literacy. Right. And so uh, this is this is our really like our most ancient form of of spiritual practice. Uh, you know, Gary Snyder uh, once uh, said in one of his, some of his earliest writings, he talked about uh, meditation probably originating uh, in the uh, sort of open-ended, uh, open-field awareness of hunters waiting for the prey to come to arrive, hmm. right? And, uh, you know, I, I've always sort of wanted to, to ask Gary, who's still alive, I think, um, yeah. I always wanted to ask Gary, well, what do you think? Do you think there was any mantric component to that? Because they might have been silently, even being very still, you know, chanting these 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 mantras or these phrases, these incantations. Yeah. And certainly, uh, you know, the people back in the encampment were probably had these these prayers for the hunt that they were chanting or songs, right? So to pool our energy together. Uh, as a group and to chant, especially communally or collectively, so that we're bathed in the sound of it, uh, is is a tradition that goes back much, much further than organized religion. 
right? Yeah. This is much right. older than Judaism, much older than ancient Mesopotamian religions, right? And the worship of the of the great mother. This probably goes back, you know, at least to the upper Paleolithic, if not much older even. And so chanting is a bedrock. And so if we are dis if people want to dismiss chanting, right? Then yeah. they're basically they're basically saying, well, you know, those earlier humans who endured and lived through uh, meteor strikes and uh, <laughs> super volcanic eruptions, right? Those right. five thousand pair of breeding humans who survived the volcanic eruption of Mount super eruption of Mount Toba seventy two thousand years ago, who are the first. Uh, human beings to learn how to craft specialized hunting tools like particular types of harpoons and spearheads to, for spearing certain types of fish, right? That these human beings were, quote, primitive and, uh, uh, you know, involved in earlier sort of superstitious approaches to, uh, uh, you know, to the, to the spiritual life, right? It's to dismiss that. Yeah. And you know what? Civilized human beings are, you know, depending on how you you measure it, you know, are 10,000 years old or 5,000 years old. Or if you're a card carrying Christian who believes that the, the whole world was created four or 5,000 years ago, <laughs> maybe then, uh, you know, uh, we, we have an expiration date right. compared to these ancestors of ours. They were a great deal wiser than we are. Now, I don't want to say that that uh, we don't carry the wisdom of our ancestors within us and it can't be recovered. I think it can. And I think we do. But, uh, you know, to dismiss these uh, earlier, earthier, more primal forms of spiritual devotion is somehow superstitious or lesser than a kind of mind only uh, approach to silent meditation is, I think, pure folly. Yeah. And in fact, you don't see if you go to a Zen temple, you hear a lot of chanting. And if you ask the teachers, why don't you stop chanting and just meditate? You know, the, the Roshis and priests will look like, like you're nuts. What are you, what are you talking about? The whole thing falls apart if we don't chant. Nobody yeah. will be able to meditate, right? Yeah. Uh -huh. The other thing about meditation that I think very few people in the West know is that it is a monastic practice that was never intended for lay people. Yeah, exactly. You have a lot of lay people uh, outside of Asia doing meditative practices uh, that were really never intended uh, for people outside of monastic settings or outside of ashrams. And so you have a lot of uh, lay Zen Buddhists who are practicing meditation. And, you know, if, if you if you were to go back and look at the cultural basis for meditation in Asia, you'd find that it really does not exist in any meaningful form in any culture uh, as as a spiritual discipline outside of the support of a cloistered or semi-cloistered environment, right? Right, right. The ordinary people chant. They chant because chanting is something that you can do that's definitive, something you know you're doing, something there's no right. guesswork involved in it that doesn't involve a you know, a, a highly evolved sort of like skill set for monitoring the contents of one's consciousness, right? And all the sort of inevitable theory that goes into maintaining a system that isn't visible, right? It has no right. visible component apart from the posture. Right. 
I once asked a friend of mine who was uh, a, a person sort of high up in the leadership of the American Sokogaka, I said, I said, you know, these friends of mine, you know, who, you know, old colleagues of mine who are, you know, Zen Buddhists and Tibetan Buddhists and Dzogchen practitioners and, you know, Vipassana practitioners and, you know, Vedanta people and all that. They, you know, they ask me all the time, you know, like, what's the advantage of chanting, really? You know, like, <laughs> why would you do that, right? So I said, Bill, what, why should we do that? Like, what, what's the advantage? He said, well, you know, Clark, the interesting thing is that you can tell if somebody's chanting. You can't tell if somebody's meditating. <laughs> it's so true. It In fact, you can't even tell if you're meditating. If your mind wanders, you stop being aware of meditating. Like you can't really, you can only tell if you're meditating or not by reflecting on what you're doing internally, right? It's invisible. Yeah. It's not visible to anybody. You get a bunch of people in a zendo, they're all sitting in rows doing something. They're basically, in their, they're all in their own private Idaho. Now, I'm not saying that there's no benefits to it, but I'm saying that without the chanting, the whole thing falls apart. Yeah. You can't do it and expect anything to hold together or for anybody to get any energy or to feel any commonality of purpose. Which, you which, need the vocalization and the pooling of the of that sound and being bathed in the sound from other people. You need the sense of doing something together that you don't have when you're with your eyes lowered strictly to the floor and in your own private world. Which actually monitoring, circles monitoring back. your own consciousness and your yeah. own mind. Which actually circles back to the whole interconnectedness thing. It's like, right, yeah, it's like right. when you're when you're sitting in a room full of people chanting, or even when I, I chant, we chant uh, uh, virtually with my sangha. I right, have an everyday right, Buddhism, and right. we chant virtually with my sangha, and, yep. and it's not a long chant, but we do it together. Even though I don't hear them, I see their lips moving. We keep our cameras right, on. Right, right. It, there is an interconnectedness that. You know, but I've known other virtual sanghas who sit and meditate, and it's like they people turn their cameras off, and I always think they're going out to get a beer. I mean, they're not even here, right? <laughs> so, well, no, you know true. when you're you know when you're doing it too. See, when you you're do. chanting, you know when you're doing it, right? If your attention lapses as it inevitably does, then you realize, oh, I've stopped chanting, right? Right, right. And there's nothing wrong with that, you know. Uh, and I'm gonna I'm gonna make a sidestep now to the rosary because Good. these traditions, like you know, at the same time that the pure land Japanese pure land Buddhism was beginning to uh, take shape under Shinran and Honen, uh, people were beginning to pray the rosary throughout Europe, and this practice was. Uh, a practice that was, you know, had a monastic component. There were priests and monks who did it, but there were also ordinary lay people who did it. You know, I think European Christ uh, Europeans uh, culture and Mediterranean culture was very, very thinly Christianized a thousand years ago. I mean, very few people were literate. You know, most priests weren't literate. Uh, you know, these are people who had been uh, observing rituals, festivals, and devotions uh, to the Great Mother and basically following the religions of the ancient mystery cults uh, for thousands of years by then. Christianity came in and, uh, you know, people basically just grafted the Christian storyline and the story of its saints uh, and its major figures like Mary onto what they already had so that the Virgin Mary appears and people instantly see her as, as uh 
as as an incarnation of the great mother. They begin to treat her like a goddess. They pray to her as a goddess. And the many hundreds and hundreds of miracle stories from the Middle Ages, Jesus and God rarely ever appear as characters. Oftentimes, they're not even mentioned. The Virgin yeah. Mary is the great mother, right, who, who, from whom all things come, the earth itself, from whom all things come, and to, which, uh, to whom all things return. And so people had a very earthy sort of devotion to her. There was this uh, uh, little phrase, this little mantra that uh, uh, that they uh, had, in, you know, that came down to them, uh, you know, through through scripture and through the priests. Uh, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Which is what the angel says to Mary at the very beginning of the of the New Testament, right? The angel Gabriel appears to Mary who is, you know, in Christian lore, a, quote, virgin. But right. but, but, but that the word virgin does, doesn't even, you know, it, it, the modern understanding of virgin, right, bears right. no connection to what, you know, early Christians thought. The, the term they were using for virgin was the same word they used to describe Diana, right, the goddess Diana, right, and Hera, and all of these various goddesses. These were Athena. These were powerful goddesses who didn't need a husband, right? And would oftentimes refuse uh, the advances if they decided to. Uh, they wanted to have sex and to have children. They would do so, but without sacrificing any of their independence or autonomy. So to call somebody as virgins basically to to call them a goddess. Hmm. And so uh, the angel Gabriel appears to the goddess to ask her if she'll give birth to a divinity. Right. So ancient hmm. people understood this. They, there were, you know, there were probably very few or no people. Uh, during the first century, the uh, uh, first century um, uh, 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 BCE, or, I mean, uh, the first century AD, or every, however you want, in the Common Era, there were probably no people who heard this story who believed that Mary was just an ordinary girl, that she was an avatar of the Great Mother, right? They would have understood it this way. And that God coming to, you know, uh, sending his angel to, uh, you know, a, to as a kind of a go-between in this divine union was part of a drama that they had seen played out in their religious traditions for thousands of years. This was the heroes gamos or the divine union of masculine and feminine forces that mm. came together every year to renew life in the springtime. So they mm. were participating in a mystery cult, right? Mm -hmm. Jesus was a God of... of uh, uh, you know, of wine and, and grain in the same way that these ancient gods and goddesses were. This is what they understood. They understood that we're practicing a mystery cult. So a thousand years later, very little has changed for these people. And when uh, the priests say, you can come before a statue of the Virgin Mary, which is where she lives, right? And you can get her to come out and grant you a miracle, by saying, Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. With thee meaning is is with with thee in yebium, is with thee in, in sexual union, mm -hmm. is with thee to bring forth life, to mm -hmm. create new life. So people would come and they would bow their heads to the floor and make a prostration and they would say these words, and then they would do it again and again and again. It was basically a mantra. Yeah, that's a mantra, and this yeah. mantra was a chanting devotion, which came directly from the divine office, which was a chanting devotion. Uh, the, the, the divine office reciting the Psalms 
uh, uh, I think, what, seven times a day at various different hours. Mm -hmm. But something that, uh, you know, literate uh, or semi-literate monastic folk would do. But ordinary people developed their own version of it, which was simply, instead of saying the 150 Psalms, was to say the, the Hail Mary 150 times. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum. Sometimes they would add, gratia plena, Dominus tecum. Benedicta tu in mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui. Right? Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. Right? This mm -hmm. was the whole Hail Mary. The word Jesus wasn't part of it during the Middle Ages. And there, the second part about uh, Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now at the hour of our death. That wasn't added until the Reformation, right? Mm. So this was a straight-up tantric mantra practice yeah. that was engaged in by people throughout the Christian world, right, which spread like wildflower and was connected to the deepest ecological teachings that have been passed down uh, uh, by these uh, to these people uh, through their ancestors. And the basic teaching was exactly the same. If you follow the storyline of the rosary through its 15 mysteries, which recount the lives of Jesus and Mary, it begins with this moment with the angel appearing to Mary and ends with her being crowned as queen of heaven and earth after everything has happened, after the whole drama is played out of birth, growth to maturation, teaching death, resurrection, and so forth, right? It's this circular pattern, like the circular shape of a mala or the circular shape right. of the rosary, the teaching of which is basically exactly the same as the teaching of the Pure Land Sutras and the teaching of uh, uh, of this wonderful little uh, uh, piece of uh, poetic prose created by uh, the Friends of the Earth for the Stockholm Conference in the early 70s. Well, you know, this is just so, you know, we started out saying, explain the thread of where all the places you've been. We've circled around now to where we are now. And there's the thread. You said it was going to be ecology. It is ecology, but it is also chanting. And what it does is just it just sort of unites all these different sort of religious movements around the most primal, I would say, impulse of just like speaking or, or uttering something, maybe. I I might be waxing you know, too far. Tai says, uh, 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 voices do the Buddhist work. This is a favorite quote of Nishiren, right? He's always yeah, quoting Tai right. said, uh, voices do the Buddha's work, right? And it's not just the, you know, a lot of people interpret that to mean the voice of the Buddha himself speaking the right. sutras or the voices of people preaching the sutras like the Lotus Sutra, right? Uh, but but it's actually also the uh, primal life force that is, that, that is expressed, that is called forth and expressed through uh, the activity of, of vocal prayer. And um, just so I don't forget to mention it, uh, the you mentioned The Way of the Rose. Uh, that is both a book uh, uh, written by myself and my wife and a community, a uh, worldwide community, uh, devoted to praying the rosary. It's not a religious group, right? <laughs> not affiliated with any religion. 
We have Buddhists. We have, you know, last count, I think we had a few Zen masters among our members and yogis and witches and all kinds of people. We even have a few practicing Catholics. We have a lot of ex-Catholics. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and basically, uh, you know, it, it the, the theme of the group is uh, praying for your heart's desire, praying the rosary uh, for your heart's desire and encouraging other people to do the same. And uh, the heart's desire is really the only protection we have against empire. Because empire wants to tell us what to desire and uh, what where to spend our life force and our energy. And the only real protection we have against that is to recover our inner compass and to find out what it is that we really truly uh, love and value as human beings. And I don't really know any other way to do that uh, than through some form of prayer. And communal prayer, too, because you need witnesses to that, to praying for your heart's desire. And you need witnesses when you get it, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and the heart's desire is a, is a subtle uh, thing. You know, people, we, we have a very strong ecological focus to our group. And there are people who are, you know, very woke to the idea that uh, human civilization uh, may be reaching its expiration point. But one of the things that fills us with hope is the knowledge that human culture and human civilization are not the same and never have been. Human beings have had culture, music, art, dance, food, love, friendship, all kinds of these things we've had for uh, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of years. We've had only we've had civilization. Uh, you know, what, what what we could really call civilization, really only for about 5,000 years. And advanced, quote, advanced modern civilization only for about 150 since the Industrial Revolution. And uh, uh, that probably cannot last, right? Right. We Our, our extractive practices from the earth, uh, you know, our burning of, of fossil fuels, uh, our, our levels of pollution, the fact that uh, you know, we are now in the midst of the sixth extinction of life on Earth and the only one to be caused by a single species. Uh, these things uh, pretty much ensure uh, that we will not continue at the present level. At the very, very least, climatological factors uh, and uh, the the danger of using, producing and using fossil fuels will result in uh, a, a drastic decrease in global agricultural pr uh, production over the next hundred years, and, you know, and less food means less people. And so we're looking at less people going forward. And, uh, you know, large scale institutions, I don't know how many of them there are even going to be. You know, the Christians are freaked out right now. American conservative Christians are freaked out because they see the, you know, uh, uh, Christianity under fire. Right. Well, right. You know, I can't. I, I, I have some serious doubts that anything like global Buddhism or Christianity or Islam or any of these religions will even exist a hundred years from now. You know, yeah. I believe that we are headed back towards a much smaller scale of living. That, in fact, uh, civil civilization and large scale institutional ways of thinking have been our undoing. And if we're going to survive, we're going to have to learn to live small and think small and uh, think global and probably think in a much more tribal way, not tribal in the negative way of thinking, but tribal in the sense of small communities working together, uh, uh, small communities of diverse 
probably at this point, very diverse sorts of people that come together for a common purpose of producing food uh, and, and finding climatological conditions that favor their survival. And, uh, you know, there, there are always going to be the techno-narcissists who assume we're going to invent our way out of this problem, yeah. considering the fact that that's how we got here. That's how we <laughs> that's created right. the problem in the first place. I, yeah. I, I don't hold much hope that that, uh, uh, that that will be the case. And furthermore, I don't believe it should be the case. Like the worst case scenario is that human beings find a way to invent themselves out of this problem, because that just means they will have created a bigger worse version of ourselves you, yeah. you know um the the i was going to end before about that you you were talking about how uh uh you know in 2000 was it for what 2014 when you when this book was published you probably wrote it two years before um uh that uh sgi had the potential to wake the buddha activating the enlightened potential of a struggling humanity and right. transforming an age it was very hopeful an age of global decline into an age of global sustainability an age of life in which one's person's happiness would be one at the expense of another's and human progress would not be mortgage against the degradation of the earth, unquote. Now, in my margin notes, I wrote amen to that. Um, but but then again, here we are, as you pointed out, somewhere way down the line here, uh, nine years later, and it, if anything, it, it's looking way more disastrous with the. Uh, well, you know, let let me make a let me make an addendum to that because uh, in writing that book, uh, uh, waking the Buddha. Uh, what I was really writing about, and I think if you go back and you, uh, if you read the book from this point of view, you'll see that this is the case. What I'm really writing about is a model for religion, or for for spiritual or, or spiritual uh, community, right. a new model for spiritual community. It isn't so much that the Soka Gakkai holds the, holds the answer. I mean, even uh, I think even uh, uh, you know Daisaku Ikeda, or maybe it was uh, Jose Toda who said that, uh, you know, the object wasn't to convert everybody. <laughs> Nishra Buddhism, realistic, right? Maybe that it wouldn't even be desirable, right? You need right. certain level, kinds of diversity of religious affiliation. Uh, but uh, but a significant enough, a kind of a leavening of the loaf in order to, to, to uh, trigger a, a global renaissance or a global change of some sort. The the, the you know, is based modern Sukagakai is based on this idea of human revolution, which holds sees something fundamentally wholesome about uh, human beings and sees the human potential as basically endless, not because there's anything unique necessarily about human beings, but because human beings can access this universal wisdom that is embodied uh, in the Lotus Sutra and the chanting of its title, Namyoho Renge Kyo. But what I wanted to do in that book, you know, what my wife and I are doing now in a book on the Soka Gakkai uh, AA and the Way of the Rose, three groups that are also wow. oh, founded that's... on the same principle of non-hierarchical, uh, basically, you know, sort of leaderless uh, uh, start, uh, type of local community. Uh, we're trying to look at what does spiritual community look like post hierarchy right. what is spiritual community based on uh the you know the spirit this uh, uh religion or spirituality serving the individual rather than the other way around right. the individual serving the ideology or serving the religion right what does it mean to turn that error around so that 
uh, individuals feel uh, supported in their immediate life and their life circumstances and exactly. pursuing, uh, you know, a wholesome, uh, a good life, right? right? And so, you know, that that's sort of where we're thinking. And even yeah. Way of the Rose, you know, we're not a religion. We're not trying to create a religion. We're trying to create spiritual community. And we've succeeded. Uh, and the people come together and they pray the rosary because, you know, most of the people who come to our group have, uh, you know, eco-feminist leanings and the rosary expresses those better than any other uh, spiritual uh, a spiritual uh, tradition or spiritual practice that, um, you know, people in America can generally claim as being uh, non-appropriational, right? Like, right. You right. go back far enough and most people, you know, in our culture, you know, have some connection, uh, you know, to to these Abrahamic traditions in which this idea is rooted. And those ideas go back even further to the Mediterranean, uh, to the Mediterranean mystery cults. Right. Yeah. And so it, it really is kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, American, European, at this point, global Catholic Church spread all over the world. Uh, you know, a, a, a global sort of practice that you know can be taken up by anybody. Yeah, you know, um, and I don't want to take this any longer because we're really at the end of our time here. But I do want to say that um, what you're saying is absolutely true. You know, I like told you I came from the Bright Dawn lineage, which is was a, was formed by a revolutionary impulse. You know, um, it, it broke away from the Shin tradition, the, the, the hierarchical tradition. And they, my teacher would always say, as we were inducted and trained and as inducted as lay ministers, we were never meant to be ordained. We were meant to be lay ministers because he said he wanted us to go out among our individual communities and just be friends and mentors and companions right. to other people and and his he would always say our job is not to be a teacher our job is to be a better student and i i take that at heart and that's why when i formed my sangha it's not it's not it's it's non-hierarchical it's not and it's also non uh, uh we're not shin because Bright Dawn wasn't Shin. It was just a non-sectarian thing. So I do think you're right. I see hope in these because people come to the Sangha because they like to talk about what's going on in their life. Right, right. And, and try to make a, connect it to something spiritual or see where that belongs in the world. So I hear you. It's totally how I see it from my more elderly vantage point. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have two thoughts. One is that Shinran, the uh, founder of Shin Buddhism, uh, was very much of this this way of thinking himself. Right later, there was a priesthood and a, you know religious uh, organization and, and hierarchy with various different sects that developed out of that. But Shinran himself uh, followed the claimed to follow the example of Kyoshin of Kako, who was a basically one of these Miyokonin type people. He was, he was a, essentially a theology professor, right? Like <laughs> right. He, he, he was basically like, uh, I don't know, you know, like the head of Harvard Theological Seminary. <laughs> or something. And one day he just woke, walked away from all of it, moved to a, a village and hired himself out as a porter and had children <laughs> and, and lived as a layman, right? And, and yeah. left his robes and statues, his books behind everything and just lived the life of an ordinary person. 
And uh, Shinran claimed to be following this example. This was the person who's, who's uh, uh, you know, he took his uh, bearing off of it and, and imagining uh, his spiritual life and spiritual life that he was passing along uh, to other people. The other thing I'll say is that, uh, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, one of the, you know, the template for all kinds of 12-step fellowships and probably the single greatest uh, innovation, uh, you know, social innovation in terms of meeting together and and and, and finding ways to uh, cooperate with one another, probably the single greatest invention of the past hundred years. In AA, uh, you know, there are, there are steps, there are traditions, there are meetings, there, you know, there's recovery, there's all kinds of things. And yet, this man named Ernest Kurtz, who wrote a, was a Harvard uh, uh, a historian, who wrote a history of AA. And at the end of that book, he boils it down to one thing. He says the success of Alcoholics Anonymous is one alcoholic talking to another. Yep. That's it. He said the steps, everything flows out of that. Without that, the whole thing falls apart. And with it, you get the steps, the traditions, the recovery program, the sponsors, everything flows out of that one thing. Not, not the alcoholic talking to a doctor or a recovery specialist right. or talking to his priest or talking to the person who's come to reprimand him for being an addict and, and creating so much chaos in the community or the family, right? But one alcoholic talking to another. Honestly, just person to person. So when you talk about people wanting to come and talk about their lives, right? Right. This is the basis for, for everything. That, that these, these strong lateral relationships between people of equal status that are pooling their resources and their wisdom. Th this is really, you know, I had a Japanese Zen master with an impeccable pedigree, but I had a 12-step sponsor who was a long-haul truck driver. And, and <laughs> You know, I could put those two people in the ring and the long haul truck driver would, in terms of just basic spiritual wisdom, would win every single time. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And boy, I cannot wait to see this upcoming book with the, how you're looping <laughs> the three together. And Circles, also not the lines. Yeah, we're, we're, we're working on it. I mean, we've been writing it for years. And uh, also think, the, the one that but, you haven't published, I'd love to see that someday. So, <laughs> well, just as a just as a final thing, if people want to uh, get involved with Way of the Rose, you can go to our website, wayoftherose.org. Uh, you can also, uh, uh, you know, join our community on Facebook, Way of the Rose. Uh, I also teach haiku poetry, which is ecologically based and is very. Uh, you know, very user-friendly sort of thing. I, I run the uh, monthly haiku challenge at tricycle, tricycle.org forward slash haiku. It's free. Anybody can join. And I teach a weekly haiku challenge and a year-long masterclass over Facebook. So feel free to reach out to me. I'm on Instagram and Facebook if you're interested in studying haiku. Haiku community is, is, uh, is also a spiritual community. People coming together to celebrate the beauty of the uh, birds and flowers. No, I just say even even as these things are passing away before our eyes, it's yeah. important to celebrate their beauty and to build spiritual community. Uh, uh, you know, based on that sh that shared sense of the of the preciousness of life. Yes, thank you, thank you so much, Clark. That's how I got to know you first. It was. <laughs> 
through uh, that your haiku teaching, and and um, I'm pretty much a hack haikuer, but uh, I still <laughs> love doing it because it's a practice in and of itself. So it's wonderful. So thank you thank so much, you. Wendy. It's been a pleasure. And thank you. And and uh, there is there anything that I didn't ask before we close that you wanted to say? You got your promotions <laughs> in, but I. <laughs> well, no, you know it's uh, uh, you know these are these are difficult times, and uh, but I do believe that uh, uh, within these traditions, it's it's work. You know, finding finding the kernel of truth and and the the precious uh, gem or jewel at the heart of these traditions. It exists. It's there. Spent yeah. the past twenty years finding it in various different traditions. It's always there, uh, but you you have to sometimes clear away quite a bit of debris to find it, <laughs> and and you can't count on the the uh, you know the, the tradition itself to show you what's most important. Because <laughs> sometimes so <laughs> sometimes it'll 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 give you a, a bell and a whistle and a badge instead. <laughs> That's so true. You know, I will of course post all the links that you mentioned right. already on my show notes so people will be able to find you. Uh thanks again. I, I mean I could talk forever to you unfortunately. We oh yeah. Have, no, this is thoroughly enjoyable. We'll have to maybe we will have to do it again if if you're so willing. So thanks again, Clark. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. That's it for this episode. You can find more about Clark and his activities in the show notes, including links to buy the book, Waking the Buddha, How the Most Dynamic and Empowering Buddhist Movement in History is Changing Our Concept of Religion, and others you will enjoy and learn from. Next up, some announcements, as usual. And as always, a reminder that you can join me and others in the private donation-supported Everyday Sangha that meets virtually via Zoom every other week on Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time. Keep alert because the Sangha is currently in the last part of a study of the book Heart of the Shin Buddhist Path, A Life of Awakening by Takamoro Shigaraki, um, but we will be starting a new study, a new book study, um, in the beginning of September. So if if you were thinking of uh, starting the Sangha when there's a new study, um, that might be a good time. Or, but you can join us at any time. Our meetings consist of a service first, including a short meditation period, traditional vow recitations and other invocations like refuge, bodhisattva vows, etc., and some chanting. The service introduces more ritual and liturgy into the structure of our meeting, much like you would find at a non-virtual Buddhist temple, church, or sangha. The service includes a Dharma talk by one of the practice leaders or myself, Wendy Shinyo-sensei, and many times a Dharma glimpse by a volunteer Sangha member. After the service, we open it up to discussion of the current book study or of anything that was inspired by one of the Dharma talks. You might consider joining the Sangha at this time to be a part of an upcoming new study and practice and a warm and welcome Sangha community. You can learn more about the Sangha by viewing the latest bonus YouTube podcast where myself, Bradley Janayo-sensei, and Terry Hoskin, those two are our practice leaders, talk about what the Sangha and what everyday Buddhism is all about. 
You can also support this podcast and the other activities of Everyday Buddhism by becoming a community member for $5 a month. If you do, you will have access to all members-only podcasts, an education series, and a private group on a non-Facebook platform. And I just released a brand new members-only podcast in the last few weeks. It is the first of, hopefully, a multi-part members-only bonus podcast responding to a listener question about religion and Buddhism. I will be talking to three people coming from diverse religious backgrounds, but who now identify as Buddhists or and or practitioners of Buddhism. This bonus episode features a conversation with Bob Uno Allender, a Bright Dawn Lay minister and sensei, and a part of the Everyday Buddhism Teaching Facilitating Group who leads our Introduction to Buddhism course. By the way, a new Introduction to Buddhism course will also be starting in September, so look for that. Bob Uno Sensei was raised in a traditional LDS Mormon family and went on to become a bishop. It is interesting to listen to Bob's Sensei sh share the story of his religion of birth and how he has incorporated that part of his life into his Buddhist practices. If you don't follow me or Everyday Buddhism on any social media platforms we post in, just go to the Everyday Buddhism website and join the membership community or the Everyday Sangha. Go to www.everyday-buddhism.com and click on either the tab that says Join Members Community or the tab that says Join Everyday Sangha. Alternatively, you can go join through Patreon at patreon.com slash Everyday Buddhism. I thank all of you who contribute this podcast, the community, and the Sangha depend on your donations to continue to exist. I don't seek sponsorships. I don't ask for financial commitments through paid pod podcast memberships. So everything I do here, every all my work and all the costs needed to support what I do is entirely self-funded except for your generous donations. Please consider a one-time or continuing donation through Patreon or on my website's donate tab. And you could even buy me a cup of coffee. Just click on the uh, co coffee cup link on my website. You can find all these links on my show notes. And thanks, too, to all of you who write in with comments and questions. As the latest bonus member podcast illustrates, I read your emails, and I may even pick your question to feature in a bonus podcast. Another way you can help is to rate and review the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. It is important to share this podcast with others if you find it helpful in your life. And if you could, take a minute to comment so people will know why you love Everyday Buddhism. That's all for the announcements. So until next time, keep finding ways to make yours and everyone's days better. <music>